The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, December 27th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we are back, and thank God we're back. You know, I do so love podcasts, but man, as a medium, we do take a lot of breaks. Way more breaks than the old, uncool, your dad's legacy media. I mean, if a podcast isn't casting, then, then it ceases to be. Or maybe it is only a pod, and we know what happened to the pods. After 12 years, the iPod Nano and iPod Shuffle have been discontinued. When I worked at NPR, they always staffed up for Thanksgiving, and they staffed for Christmas and New Year's Day, and they staffed every day between Christmas and New Year's Day. Might have been a pain to the workers, unless you hated your family or were a Jew, or were a Jew who hated your family, who wanted union-mandated double pay, in which case, Christmas miracle. And yeah, the audiences were down a little bit on those days, 10% or 20%, but not 100%. People were listening. I was listening. You probably listen. Yet when it comes to podcasts, many go darker than a plot twist on S-Town. The everyday podcasts, of which I am one, although not on Christmas Day or the day before after, a little bit, a little bit shamefully, I will say. I felt a little bad about that, though I am just one person, plus a Pierre and a Daniel. But the daily podcasts, I have noticed, they have kept up. My feed kept getting replenished, except the CBC ones took off on Christmas Day. That's okay. But I'm really talking about the podcasts that talk about the news. Where's Ben Shapiro? Where's the weeds? Can we call it blabbermouth? from the stranger if they stopped blabbing. And let's talk for a second about the New York Times Argument podcast. You're like four episodes in and you decided the holidays were not a good time to have an argument? Insanity. I think for all the bravado, the category killing, the reimagining of the audio world, podcasts taking so much time off, it shows that they are seen by their creators as maybe less essential than the established media we all like to say we're here to eat for lunch looks at itself. But the Times, New York Times, that's still printing. CNN's still broadcasting. NPR is still cranking out stories about the massive gender diversification of the Indian coconut picking industry. Kerala is a state in the south of India. The name means land of coconuts. It exports its coconuts all over the world. But there's one problem. They have to be hand-picked, and very few locals want to do that kind of manual labor anymore. Here's NPR's Lauren Freyer. I mean, this is why you listen to NPR. And yes, yes, all the plum coconut picking jobs are going to women, but the plum picking jobs are actually staying with the men. It usually involves sticking in your thumb and declaring what a good boy am I, boy, not girl. This is why, overwhelmingly male, but the coconut future is female. Come on, you smart pod yackers. You might miss a story like breaking coconut news or the markets. The markets are not taking time off. They're going nuts. Down 500, up 500. I need expert analysis to tell me to buy on the dips. Don't you like to buy on the dips? Really seems clear in retrospect. At the time, it seems like a plummet. Buy on the plummet. Oh no, it turned out it was a dip. So let's go world of smart people discussing things into microphones. I'm not talking about your bags men or your slows burn or your heads long. Those ones are like books or attenuated documentaries. I'm not talking about your missing lady podcast. Those are like true TV, but replace Nancy Glass with a nice human being. I mean the podcast that purport to cover the news, then leave the news uncovered because it's Christmas and family and fruitcakes and vacations. 
Let's go, folks, because the denizens of daily podcasting, they are on the job. They're here to tell you that today ain't going to explain itself, that the daily happens every day, that the Post continues to report. And now here I am with the gist. Hero, a word perhaps overused, but at other times apt. On the show today, I spiel about a no longer lonely man who was once stuck in the White House. He's been liberated. He's in Iraq. He's wearing a jacket of a, of a green hue and a puffiness that I don't think we've seen before. But I'll, I'll focus mainly on his words, not his look. But first, the rate of infant mortality among African Americans is more than twice as high as it is for America as a whole. And that has been true for decades. Some explanations are what you'd think they'd be, poverty, prenatal care. But even when normed for those things, black babies are much more likely to die before their first birthday. Up next, I talk to a reporter who is asking why. And we, I don't know if debate is the right word, but thoroughly discuss one idea that's gained a lot of traction, the idea that out-and-out racism is killing black babies. It's Prisca Neely up next. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. So as you know, on this program, I always talk about the idea how, I don't know, most people will tell you that narratives and stories of people are the way into a situation. But for me, I'm always hooked by a stat. And in journalism, we're advised to steer away from the stat and into the story. But to me, oftentimes, the stat holds more truth than the story does, and the story can fill in the stat. Well, recently, I came across a stat, or I was listening to a favorite podcast of mine. It's been a minute, and one of the guests on the show that day said that the infant mortality rate among African Americans twice as high as among white Americans. And I said to myself, twice as high in 2018? That's kind of alarming. And you know who else said the same thing? Prisca Neely, who was the person talking about that stat. In fact, she's done a number of reports about this, and I want to get into it with her. What explains this disparity that's gone on for a long time? Prisca Neely covers early childhood education and development for the radio station KPCC. Hello, Prisca. How are you? Hey, Mike. I'm good. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. So the way into it for you was, am I, am I recapping it correctly? Uh, you heard the stat and the stat grabbed you? Absolutely. Yeah. I was at a, I was at a conference about maternal health issues and was sitting in a room and heard a presentation where they said that statistic, black babies are twice as likely to die in their first year of life. So I'm sitting there as a black woman, never heard of this before and never heard that statistic and was just really struck by it, um, especially as they broke it down more. So it's not just about income or access to care, but a black woman with a college degree is more likely to lose her baby than a white woman who hasn't completed high school. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there listening to this and he hearing more about it. Um, the, the leading cause of the deaths is prematurity. So babies who are born too early, too small, and either 
die, you know, right as they're born, maybe they're stillborn, or the complications of prematurity. So babies who are born early are much likely to develop other issues in their first year of life that could lead to their death. And, you know, infant mortality is one of these measures that, you know, we look at to, to determine a population's health overall. And it's, in, you know, indicative of a lot of other things. So, you know, this really struck me because when I heard about the prematurity aspect of it, um, one of my sisters lost two babies who were born very premature. And um, my nephew, who's now 11 and doing great, but he was born two months premature. So I realized that this had touched my own family. And when I asked my sisters about it, they had never heard the statistic either. So that was very alarming to me. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people find out about it when it happens to them and a family member. And I'm, I suppose they're shocked by saying, you know, how do we not know this? How does this, how is this not on the top of the national agenda for science and politics? It doesn't seem to be subjective. It doesn't seem to be an argument about appropriation. It probably shouldn't get people mad in terms of, oh, that's not true. It should just be shocking and something that we as a society do something about. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I think for a lot of people, one thing my sister said to me when I was talking to her about it was, I'm not sure that we're aware that this is an issue beyond just our bodies. I mean, this is something that a lot of times there are so many assumptions that go into it when you hear that statistic. And because the health of a baby is linked to the health of a mom, there's a lot of blame that goes into it on an individual level, but also on a societal level. And a lot of the policy approaches historically have really been focused on questioning the behavior of the mother, questioning some type of genetic link. Right. And we, we know through research that those things do not explain the gap, and they certainly don't explain the persistence of the gap. And we've seen overall the rates of infant mortality drop. And, you know, a lot of babies are, are living, you know, we have, we're better at keeping preemies alive, too. But that gap is still there. The two to one gap nationally is still there. In this one CDC report I came across, it said that black infants experience nearly fourfold as many deaths related to short gestation and low birth rate as white babies. And so I would think that if the gap is uh, the overall mortality gap is that black infants uh, die at twice the rate, but prematurity and low birth rate is fourfold. That factor, the low birth rate and prematurity, not only explains the entire gap, explains more than the entire gap. I mean, that is what we're talking about here. Right, right. You have to look square on at prematurity in this issue. And that's where you start to ask the question, okay, why are moms going into labor early? You know, what's what's behind that? And so one of the major causes is high, high blood pressure or preeclampsia that triggers the preterm birth. And I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, even when you do sound the alarm on this issue, it's complicated because it's not just something that can be addressed in the hospital or in a clinic. And it's not even something that can be addressed in the nine months around the pregnancy. Um, more of the solutions now are looking at the life course and what Black women are experiencing in this country over the course of their lives and really pointing to racism, whether it is structural or interpersonal racism that is causing higher levels of stress that is contributing to preterm birth. Okay, this is the very interesting to me 
explanation that you talk a lot about in your reporting, but I want to break it down a little bit. So when you say racism, you don't mean racism in terms of what economists have demonstrated that leads to a disparity in, say, family wealth or a disparity in educational attainment, which leads to a disparity in earnings. You're not talking about racism that shows up somewhere else, right? The effects of racism on poverty or education, say. Well, it, I mean, when we look at the structural aspect of it, we're, we are looking talking about how communities as a whole are steered away from resources and the stress that that can cause over the course of a life, which can, you know, manifest itself during pregnancy, which is already a high stress time. But there's more and more researchers research that's connecting racism and the stress from racism to health. And so infant mortality is just one of the ways that we're seeing that play out. Um, but there's a term weathering, which is looking at how social and environmental factors can cause chronic stress and lead to the deterioration of health as a woman ages. So, you know, being weathered by a storm. And, you know, like I said, when when pregnancy is stressful time, you know, elevating those levels of stress even more at that time, which leads to preterm birth. So to back up a little bit, I read all of your reporting and the numbers are there And you demonstrate that this is a persistent gap. And then you come to the idea that, you know, this is very informed by racism in a lot of different ways. Part of it is that a doctor who might not be of the same race as the patient would be more likely to dismiss a legitimate complaint. But the other part of it is that it's just stressful to be a black person in this society. I mean, that is almost a, I'm not going to say a hopeless situation, but progress on that is so slow that I don't know in 20 years we should expect uh, the black uh, infant mortality rate to close with the white infant mortality rate if it's going to take just racism all but disappearing in America. That's not very optimistic at all. It's not. And I think that 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 has kind of caused paralysis. I mean, because you you feel this is such a big issue. It's connected to so many things. So how do you solve it? So therefore, you know, do you do anything? I mean, I I found this this 1984 hearing about, you know, the gap, the black-white gap in infant mortality and closing that gap. More than 30 years ago, this conversation is happening on a national level. And um, one of the top health officials at the time um, you know, was citing the statistics about college-educated black women and white women having vastly different outcomes. And at the end of his statement, he says, I'm not convinced that we can reduce it to the white rate with the current state of our knowledge because I don't know what the rest of the problem is. And, you know, in in the 30 years since that statement, we do have more information about racism, about the role of stress and health. But it's still it, it still just seems so big and complicated that I think that that is one of the challenges when you're thinking about policy to address this issue. And, you know, that that can just kind of cause people to freeze and not really do anything about it. But, you know, I also talked to researchers who have said, you know, this has been centuries in the making. You know, you can't talk about this issue without going back to slavery, going back to the way that black people have been treated in this country. And so it's been centuries in the making so you can't expect it to be fixed overnight um but that means that you, that doesn't mean that you just don't start anywhere 
Yeah. Now, there are a couple of confounding things in the statistics that I wonder if you have an answer for. So we've been talking about the high rates among African-Americans for infant mortality. And if uh, racism is a powerful example, then you would expect or one would expect the rates of uh, Hispanics uh, to have also higher rates than average and and they and they don't there if the the overall infant mortality rate in the United States is 5.9 deaths per thousand live births and for Hispanics it's 5.0 what explains that difference yeah so that's something that researchers referred to as the latina paradox and you know some of the explanations that researchers have for that is really more about the social and cultural supports that are in Latino communities. So take breastfeeding, for example. That's one of the things that, you know, the CDC recommends as part of the fix for infant mortality. So black women are a lot less likely to breastfeed. But what are the reasons for that? Now, this is another thing that gets really complicated. Um, Black women are more likely to have to return to work right away. They're more likely to be in a hospital where they don't have a lactation consultant or someone who's helping them. The Latina rates for breastfeeding are higher. And, you know, researchers don't fully understand that either. But one of the thoughts is that uh, there's more of a there's more of a generational um, tie and the mothers were more likely to breastfeed. So that's something that's been modeled. But this is one of the things that's kind of been cut out in the black narrative is breastfeeding because of all of those reasons that I've mentioned. What about uh, low birth weight and premature babies among Hispanics? Yes. Yeah, so the black rate is um, 49% higher than the rate among all other women. So for black women, it's 134 and uh, the Hispanic rate is 9.2, uh, which is closer to the right, white rate, which is 8.9. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about is the fact that premature birth rates are have been on the rise for the past few years across the board. Do you think that much of the solution is a political one? Uh, maybe or maybe maybe it's a medical one. Maybe it's a sociological one. But, you know, if our political leaders rallied support for this as an issue, what could be done? So I think it's something that needs to really come from the top and the bottom. So you need the people who are in charge, you know, holding the purse strings to say, this is an issue. We want to fix it. We're prepared to look, you know, deep into this issue and talk about racism, talk about talk specifically to black people and figure out what's going on in their communities. But there are also so many people who have been doing this work for decades on the ground and at a grassroots level who say over and over again when like a new policy person comes in that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need more funding for whatever programs that we'd been trying to do um, to empower black women to to provide more social support. Um, that is one of the one of the keys to fixing this, too, is just, you know, having removing isolation. Isolation is one of the things that people are really concerned about here in L.A. County, where there are certain regions where black women are just completely isolated and may not have any any social support during pregnancy. Um, So something that really needs to, and you really need to have policymakers saying, we care about this, we're going to fund this, but you need to make sure that Black women are involved in the solution process. Priska Neely is a reporter for the L.A.-based radio station KPCC. She covers childhood education and development, and uh, she's written and reported extensively on the infant mortality rate among African Americans. Some of her writing is at the Center for Health Journalism at USC. Thank you so much, Priska. Thank you. Thank you. 
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Dateline Washington, December 25th. President Trump is the first president not to visit the troops at Christmas since 2002. Bad, bad President Trump. December 26th. Trump visits Iraq. Headline, Washington Post. Did Trump really violate Iraq's sovereignty when visiting U.S. troops there? New York Magazine. Trump accidentally exposes the location identities of U.S. Navy SEAL Team 5 on Twitter. CNN. Well, they invited on Rep. Denny Heck. What is deeply disappointing is that when he went to Iraq, he used it as an occasion to advance his specific policy objective, his new policy to withdraw from Syria. And I think that's highly inappropriate use of a visit like this. What the rep, heck? How can it be both bad that Trump doesn't visit Iraq and then bad that he does? Well, I have a theory and it's this. All those voices calling for Trump to visit perhaps didn't realize that it would still be Trump who was doing the visiting. And upon arriving there, he'd do Trump things and say Trump words. We're no longer the suckers, folks. And people aren't looking at us as suckers. You're not suckers, guys. That's right. In fact, we're going to change your name from the Strike Fighter Squadron 102 Flying Suckers back to the Diamondbacks. And also, you guys in the 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion, you will no longer be the 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion Roland Dupes. Nope. The Roland Dupes will now be the Destroyers. And to you folks in the 336th Fighter Squadron, you're no longer the fly and easily hoodwinked puppets. Nope, nope. Proper name. You're going to be the Rocketeers. You deserve it. Sorry to have shamed you all those years by calling you the easily hoodwinked flying puppets. Yeah. Trump said some uh, wacky things, some flat out untrue things, like when he bragged that he had just given the military one of the biggest raises they've ever received. They had plenty of people that came up. They said, you know, we could make it smaller. We could make it 3%, we could make it 2%, we could make it 4%. I said, no, make it 10%, make it more than 10%. Because it's been a long time. It's been more than 10 years. Been more than 10 years, that's a long time. In fact, members of the military get a raise every year, and this year the raise was 2.4%. The Military Times reported that Trump's initial pay raise proposal was 2.1%, but lawmakers approved the higher 2.4% mark. That would be a lie. Imagine going into a war zone to tell the troops how much you respect them, how much you value them, and having that expression of value and respect turn into lying about giving them a raise. It would be unconscionable, except that is exactly how Trump has conducted his entire professional life. And he also says some just lazy, clumsy things. He thinks he's this gifted rhetorician. He's really, really quite limited. What he, he does this thing where he takes a word, and he knows the word has some meaning. It's written for him on a teleprompter. And maybe he wants to riff on it, but he can't come up with different words or better words 
words. He just repeats the word and asks the audience to think about that word because he lacks the skill to add any value himself. He does it here. One that everybody knows of, even back in the States, Task Force Thunder and their Lieutenant Colonel Kent Park. There's a reason for that name, Thunder, isn't there? Same thing here. And all personnel who reside at Camp Havoc. You know what that means, Camp Havoc. Well, yes, I do believe Trump knows what Havoc means. I do not believe, however, that he actually knows what a square mile is, as evidenced by this bit. We've liberated more than 20,000 square miles of territory. Think of what that is, 20,000 20,000 acres is a lot. Think of what 20,000 square miles is. It's a lot. Well, since a square mile is 640 acres, I'd imagine that 20,000 miles is 640 times that amount in acres. But no, what it really does is it reveals how small Trump thinks. He thinks in acreage because he is at heart a golf course developer, and he just can't think big like a statesman. He can't think in square miles because he's never had to stretch his imagination that far. He's also so lazily inexact. Originally, years ago, they came here. And it was supposed to be for three to four months. And that was a long time ago. That was many years ago. Many moons ago. I mean, there are dates to this, right? Al-Qaeda in Iraq is formed in 2004, a precursor to ISIS in 2006. And then uh, in 2013, they call themselves ISIS. In 2014, they take control of Mosul and Tikrit. They declare their caliphate in 2014, and in 2015, the U.S. formally declares war against ISIS. Those are all actual dates that he could have woven into his speech, but instead it's just, oh, a long, long time ago. And what would, where would he be? Where would he be without the phrase, a lot of? I said, I gave you a lot of six months. I looked at a map, and two years ago, it was... A lot of red all over that map, but now you have a couple of... Always have lots of things in mind, things that you have in mind, too. But a lot of other people don't. A lot of the media doesn't want to report it correctly. But we have a lot of things in mind. I will keep that in mind. The president then took some time to criticize Nancy Pelosi and Democrats in general. This was on a trip overseas as the commander-in-chief to address the troops... So yes, it was good that he addressed the troops insofar as it was a demerit, yet another demerit on his presidency that he hadn't yet done so. But it could also be true that the manner in which he addressed them and the specifics of his address were not in keeping with history and precedent and actual rules and laws that's arguable with the disclosure of SEAL Team 5 and not in keeping with good sense. Consistently, the president shames us with his inattention and indifference, only to attempt to focus, which usually serves to shame us further. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who note that the cut on Tuesday was not there on Tuesday. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, suggests that instead of Ezra Klein posting an episode that he calls Best Of, He could just write in his feed, hey, remember that Brian Stevenson episode from a few months ago? Go listen to that. It would free up a lot of time on all our iPods. 
Hey, here's a trivia question, which will be answered in the very popular, a lot of people are talking about how popular it is, Saturday newsletter. And you can sign up for that newsletter at slate.com slash gist news. Here's the question. Tomorrow, I plan to talk with uh, Andy Serkis, who's noted for playing many simians, King Kong and, and Caesar in Battle of the Apes. So it leads me to this question, perhaps the greatest fictional ape that Andy Serkis has never played. What fictional second banana in an ape-related television show shares almost the exact same name with a legendary African-American film director? So this was a second banana in an ape-related show shares almost the exact same name with an African-American auteur. The gist. The next time Blabbermouth dings me in their credits, you know that my shame tactics are working. Oomperu depru depru, and thanks for listening.